Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 143. Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom is back. And this week, I'm going to be talking with the legendary TV host and conservationist, Peter Gross. Peter is known for designing innovative wildlife displays where the animals can roam free of fencing developing endangered species breeding programs, and for being one of the hosts of the Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. What you're going to hear Peter talk about today is his life working in the wildlife conservation education, why he feels it's important to introduce conservation to a new generation, and what Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom means to the world 60 years after its first airing. He's also going to fill us in on some big news, which you might have gleaned a little from the title of this episode, but Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom is starting a new series. So listen into the episode, find out when this episode is premiering, and hear a little bit about one of the world's most renowned conservationists, Peter Gross. Right, welcome back, everyone, and thanks for joining me on this, what I consider a, a very special episode, uh, because on the line today, we have the legendary TV host and conservationist, Peter Gross. Peter, how are you doing? I am doing well. It's great to talk to you and very excited about the new show you mentioned that we're going to be launching in uh, January of 23. And we're going to get to that, but uh, that's a great tease because I want to sort of build up to this uh, sort of, it, it's already been announced, but I, on this show, at least the big announcement that we'll make on this show, um, I, I want to build up to that. So first I want to get into just so I, I feel like a lot of people know who you are because of your time on uh, Mutual of Omaha's uh, Wild Kingdom, but uh can you just sort of talk a little bit about like what some of the you built this career in wildlife conservation education? Um, what is it that has kept you in that career? What are some of the best parts that you've experienced? Well, I I think to, that what kept me in the career has always been my passion for wildlife. I've always uh, loved animals. As a child, my backyard playground were woods, uh, hills, rivers, um, a pond in the backyard. And that's what sort of connected me with nature at a very early age. Um, I was fortunate after that to start working uh, with uh, endangered species programs and then uh, love the fact to share ideas with people about what I had seen watching Wild Kingdom growing up. I was one of those millions of people uh, Sunday afternoon that would gather on the couch and watch Jim Fowler and Marlon Perkins uh, in the most remarkable parts of the world uh, talking about conservation issues in those days and uh, what needed to be done to help them and to experience some of the locations and, and, and the, the manner in which 
people had to work with wildlife in those days was risky. There's no way around it. It was very risky. So it was exciting. It was educational. And that sort of uh, set the hook for me. You know, I grew up watching the reruns of those shows. And um, since I heard that the show is going to have a rebirth uh, here again, I've taken some time to watch on YouTube because they're available on YouTube uh, to be able to watch these shows. And, and you mentioned how things were sort of like risky back then dealing with wildlife. And it it's shocking to see um, how animals were handled and, and some of the things that were um, talked about back then. I mean, what kind of changes have you seen over your career in conservation, um, both good and bad? Well, I think that, that, when when you look back in the 60s, uh, as early as 1963, when the first show started, uh, when Mr. Perkins would be out uh, looking for venomous snakes, that was one of his uh, loves was reptiles. And he would casually uh, bend down and with a little piece of stick, gently uh, pin down a highly venomous snake in South America, turn to camera and talk to people about uh, sort of the bad press that snakes have always had, how important they were, uh, their role in the ecosystem, um, the kind of rodents that carry diseases that that particular snake uh, kept those populations down, and how it would just grab us to see how skillful he, he handled these snakes, how careful he did, but there's always this element of risk because it would be a highly venomous snake. Um, in contrast now, oftentimes when we're filming wildlife, um, the wildlife doesn't even know they're being filmed. It can be done with a drone, uh, with a motion sensing camera as it walks by in the middle of the night. Uh, one of the shows we'll be featuring uh, in the new Wild Kingdom uh, it deals with wildlife having to cross freeways and how they're building underpasses and overpasses just for wildlife. That photography was all done without even humans being there, just true as the motion as an animal walked by, coming back to a computer and then recorded for us to study. Yeah, I mean, this show, even though it was reruns mostly when I was watching it, it inspired me um, to be more conservation minded. Um, I grew up in a, a very outdoors household and um, you know, as the listeners have come to know, as I recount the stories all the time that, you know, we had family property in a cabin that I went to most weekends. And, you know, I was able to to explore much as it sounds like you were. Uh, why is it important to still educate the next generation on conservation and, and try to inspire them? Well, I think it's absolutely important, not only because, um, Nature is such an important part of our lives. I think there's a, a balance that is so needed, especially with a new generation that is forced to spend so much time looking at screens. Um, we spend so much time sitting. The manner in which we, we communicate now dictates that we spend a lot of time not in motion in enclosed areas, not out enjoying the natural world. So I think it's an important part of our life to have a balance, to spend time in nature, to enjoy the fact that some species of wildlife are making a comeback. We have such a tremendous uh, national park system, state park system, county park system, and they're there, they're available for us. And so I like to encourage people to take their young children out as early as they can 
spend time in the natural world like you did getting to go to your cabin and now it's something that you really appreciate is your time in nature. I don't think if we introduce this next generation to the importance of saving the natural world and let them see how good it is for us physically and mentally to spend time in that environment, which is so good for us, then they might not understand it and be motivated to want to save it. And that's one of our goals that started way back in the 60s is to teach people the importance of saving wildlife, uh, expose them to what's happening in the natural world, and um, get them more involved, both going to a national park, a state park, or even in their own backyard. Even their own backyard could be considered habitat. So we hope people get involved with that as well. <clears throat> You know, there have been, since the 60s, there have been some conservation success stories, uh, like the bald eagle, for example. I mean, do you feel like the original show, like that's part of the show's legacy, is calling attention to these conservation needs and, and having success partly due to the show and heightened awareness? Absolutely. I think uh, early shows talked about early problems we were having. I remember... Marlon Perkins talking about bald eagles and the effect of uh, DDT on bald eagles and birds of prey in general, the fastest bird of prey in the world, the peregrine falcon, um, condors. There are so many birds of prey that were affected, some by lead, some by DDT and other issues. So even back then, uh, when the attitude may have been, gee, there's so much wildlife and there are so many wild lands that why should we be concerned? Um, early on, Mutual of Omaha and Wild Kingdom was bringing to the attention the fact that this is our national bird. We need to make changes. As a result of that came captive breeding, um, also with the peregrine falcon and many other birds of prey. Now we no longer use that. We substitute other uh, products that are not harmful to wildlife and it's no longer even used in this country. So yes, indeed, I think each show did have a positive impact on the future of wildlife in this country. So what are some of the conservation topics that need to be discussed now? Like we don't, I'm not saying we don't need to talk about um, reducing lead on the landscape to because bald eagles are so successful now. Like it's, yes, it's a success story, but we still need to be mindful of that. But what are the major issues now that we need to be worried about in this country? Well, I think there are, there are many, there's so many major issues that we hear about in the news. Uh, I think that's predominantly what we hear about in the news. Um, it's sort of overwhelming, I think, for a younger generation. Um, we do have world issues. Uh, we have many problems, but more importantly, I think it's that we need to uh, creates some hope to talk about the issues that we have as well as relating back to the issues we used to have. I remember growing up hearing uh, a story about how polluted some of the rivers were uh, in the middle of our country. They would actually catch fire um, not far from where I grew up um, in the Hudson Valley. I remember hearing out the Hudson River, how it wouldn't be safe to eat the wildlife that people or go near the shores or eat a fish that you caught or children and things they used to do. And now that's been cleaned up. So I think we need a blend of focusing on the fact that, gee, we do have serious problems. Over the years, they've seemed unsurmountable, yet we figured them out and we can solve them one at a time. 
Now, when we talk about our carbon footprint, we relate that to individuals and what they can do to affect their carbon footprint. Um, we talk about uh, use of products, one use products um, that we should probably stay away from because the fact that maybe your one use plastic bottle ends up in a stream a thousand miles from the ocean, it may, that stream may end up in the ocean, which is going to end up plastic. Plasticities in the ocean are one of the biggest problems we have for ocean-going wildlife. So if we approach people at a local level, even though it's a devastating world problem, one by one, each of us can stop throwing pollutants or leaving them on beaches or things that affect wildlife uh, internationally. Um, to people often ask me now, what can I do to help? Because that seems to be the attitude. And I ask them to talk to the local nature science center, local zoos, uh, get involved locally and find out what you can do. Can it be a beach cleanup, a river cleanup, a replanting of indigenous species of plants? Um, once young people get involved and participate, it feels good to be helping to participate in saving our natural world. Um, that's how I think we do it. So uh, this is, we're coming up 60, 60th year anniversary, right? And this show has, con it's not like it had a run in the 60s and then that was it. It, it kept coming back and um, web series uh, in, in the 2000s and now it's coming back again. Um, what is it about this show and about its message and its legacy that people keep sort of clamoring for new episodes and updates and information from the conservation world? I think that that Mutual of Omaha has had a commitment to wildlife education since the early 60s and continued to do it. Uh, even when we weren't filming new shows, we were still involved with uh, school lecture programs and science centers and programs that were educating people in different forms. Um, I think what brings people back is the fact that it has such a legacy for all these years of being a wonderful place to learn about conservation, be educating, being educated, um, that the next generation sees it as a continuum of what we should do to help preserve our natural world. So I have to ask, is this a, is this a dream job for you? Uh, when you initially became the co-host uh, in, in the beginning um, of your career and then now becoming you know, the official host and the face of this program in this modern time, is, is this the dream job for you or is there something else that you'd rather be doing? Um, modestly, I have to say it. I've always had the best job in the world since I started working with them in 1985. Uh, I've been involved with uh, captive breeding of endangered species and working with species survival programs. So when the opportunity arose for me to travel to countries all around the world and learn from Jim Fowler, who had been mentored uh, from Marlon Perkins, all that he had learned about uh, working with researchers and biologists, um, generally, we would spend a lot of time finding out necessary issues that needed to be talked about, then spend time on location with the biologists and researchers and find out how they were doing their projects, and then figure the best, most accurate way to tell their story. Um, this has always been the most enjoyable thing for me to see these amazing parts of the world, uh, see wildlife in its natural habitat, and then be able to record it 
and bring it back and share it with people who can't necessarily go to Africa or South America or China or Siberia, bring it back and share it to them in the living room. Now we're going to get to do that again as well as uh, on the internet and hopefully affect the attitudes of millions of people about conservation. You mentioned the the captive breeding programs that you've been involved in. Um, what What's that like? Like, what are some of the things that you're doing or what are some of the animals that you've worked with um, with the ultimate goal of trying to increase the natural population? Well, uh, part of our, our new series, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom Protecting the Wild, is partnering with American Association of Zoos and Aquarium and their zoos. Uh, and we tell the story about their uh, species survival programs, one of which is about saving coral. Many people think of coral as a rock along the coast when coral is a living thing. It's a living animal that has been tremendously stressed with hurricanes and in some cases pollution. And for years, when unable to figure out to grow coral in captivity, a series of zoos now have uh, figure out how to not only grow coral, but uh, get it to reproduce in a very controlled situation. We were able to go to Key West and I was able to dive with people from Moat Marine Laboratory in Florida. We were able to regraft, replant Elkhorn coral and other types of coral and that is going to regrow again. Uh, we looked at some other pieces of reef, um, and reef is so necessary, not just because it creates wonderful habitat for marine life, but also because it protects the low-lying coastlands of people who live there as the storms come through. To see how well this regeneration of reef is doing and the number of wildlife that is coming back and using that for their nurseries and their habitat and their food source. So those kinds of stories that we're telling um, our success stories, again, about uh, how well people that we partner with in conservation are having successes with their programs. So the new series is premiering on January 2nd. So we get to start the new year with some great new uh, premium television that you actually get to learn about. Um, can you tell us a little bit you, you already mentioned the coral, but can you mention a little, you know, a couple of the places that you've gone uh, to be able to do some of this filming and um, being able to talk about some of the success stories that will be featured? It's sure. Uh, most most recently, we were in Tuskegee, uh, Wyoming, which uh, is a location where black-footed ferrets have been reintroduced. Back uh, for wild ferrets were thought to be completely extinct. Imagine that. Um, a species that was no longer existing on the face of our planet. At a large ranch there, um, a black-footed ferret was discovered. Um, and then the, the U.S. Department of Interior and other wildlife officials were notified. They came out and worked with private landowners and biologists and researchers, and again with zoos, and collected the, the remaining black-footed ferrets, established captive breeding programs in, in the early 80s, reintroduced to a prairie dog colony, which is about 90% of their diet, uh, black-footed ferrets. They've been surviving since then uh, and doing quite well. Um, and now we were there recently filming the next group of black-footed ferrets that were reintroduced to the wild. You can't imagine, uh, for me and the viewers when this show airs, to see what it's like to see a species 
run back out onto the prairies, head down the holes where the prairie dogs live, pop their heads back up and look around and see them back where they belong, knowing they were thought to be extinct and they're back surviving in the wild again. Not that uh, dissimilar to the story we're telling about the condors. In my lifetime, imagine this, there were 25 condors remaining um, and it was the same issue. They were collected, uh, placed in many uh, zoos, hand raised on puppets. You may remember that story, how they were raised, not having any human contact, um, then taken to the wild and released from 25 to 35 to 55 to several hundred, over 500. We were able to go there as the next 15 condors one of which was having its medical check, which I got to hold. And what a thrill knowing I was holding one of the remaining endangered species in my arms, this 17 pound bird with a 10 foot wingspan that was in perfectly good health with a small transmitter being clipped on that was about to be released back as we filmed it. It soared out over its original nesting area and disappeared off to do what it's supposed to be doing. So again, another great success story we'll be talking about uh, launching on January 2nd and of 23. You mentioned the black-footed ferrets and I have to say, um, when you see a picture of them, they just, they look so cool. But when it comes to putting these, this animal back out on the landscape, like, What's the reasoning? Is is there more to it than just the perpetuation of a species, or you know, like what what's the ecological role that black-footed ferrets have? Well, I think that each species is very important. Um, they all have a role in our natural world. Uh, they're part of that balance. Uh, prairie dogs multiply very quickly. Um, there are other species of rodents and harmful animals that they sometimes prey on as well. So they're they'll they are there to help keep that balance of wildlife in the prairies um, of the West. So you mentioned you know the, the inspiring part of of this show is to try to get you know people to take their kids and, and visit national parks, state parks, county parks, be out in nature. Um yeah. and a lot of the places that you mentioned are public spaces, right? That's public land. But now you talked about finding this black-footed ferret on a private ranch. Um, can you just talk about the role of private landowners uh, and why it's important to have them on board to make conservation stories a successful conservation story? Well, I think that, that private landowners in most cases uh, are proud to have wildlife that's existing on the land in which they own. Um, and oftentimes, as those species start to thrive, they then leave privately owned land and end up in public lands. Um, so there seems to be a tremendous amount of pride getting involved with the agencies and the conservation associations that are helping to preserve them. They work hand in hand uh, to preserve the species. Not unlike um, our first show that'll be launching is about two bear cubs that were caught in the devastating fires up here where I am now in the Pacific Northwest. And these bear cubs uh, were being viewed on a backyard camera. And the people who lived on this property would watch the bears come by and uh, 
play in front of their cameras at night and make them attach them and then wander off and graze. And then these devastating fires came through. And as they looked at the camera, they noticed the two cubs were no longer walking, but they were crawling. They had to crawl along because of the fires they'd been burned. The story we're telling um, is a, a group called PAWS, this wonderful conservation group that saves all kinds of wildlife. The bears were tranquilized, brought to them, and then were treated for their burns. But, but here's the key to the success of this story. We never want bears to have a relationship with humans and not fear humans. Bears and humans need to keep their distance. So they had to treat these bears yet have no human contact. So each time they treated them, they were tranquilized with a syringe pole. Uh, they were kept completely out of view of humans. They had remote cameras so we could view how they were doing. Uh, the people at Boz, the veterinarians, the volunteers, all the professionals that worked there, um, x-rayed them, uh, treated their wounds. And this went on for months and months, but never with their eyes open in contact with people. Eventually, they got to the point where they were healing. And since they were siblings and they had different levels of injuries, they were introduced. We were there for the introduction of the two bears and they hadn't been together for months. So we were curious about how well they were going to get along. And after just a couple of minutes, they start tumbling and rolling in playing together. So as our, as our story develops, um, we learned that the bears are, are hibernating now. They get fat and they're healthy and they go way up in the Cascade Mountains of far from humans and still having complete fear from humans and are released back to the wild. And this, this the conclusion of this show um, still brings a tear to a lot of people's eyes to see them after all they've been through, completely healed. They have tracking devices on them now, small tracking devices, and they're healthy, they're doing well, they're back near to their original location, they're feeding, and it's a complete success story of these bears without human intervention, private landowners, government agencies, uh, wildlife services, and all the dedicated people at PAWS and their volunteers, these bears would not have survived. That'll be the first show that um, will be running in January of 23 on January 2nd. Immediately following um, our float, we'll be in the Rose Parade this year, which we themed after these two bears. And um, so immediately after the Rose Parade on RFD TV, um, as well as streaming, uh, will be the first show launching the new series about the success, success and the happy ending for these wonderful bears. Yeah, I feel like this next question might be a little tough to answer just with the fact that your career has spanned such, not to age you, I don't, I'm sorry for this, but it's span so many years and you've had so many experiences with wild animals is there is there an animal that you haven't had an experience with that you really want to uh, given the opportunity um yes there's a, there's always one more you'd like to you'd like to see um i've never spent any time in new guinea and I'd love to spend some time and film the bird life and the wildlife that's in New Guinea. It's so remote. But I have been so fortunate to be able to dive at the Barrier Reef and spend time in, in Lake Baikal in Siberia and time in Africa and with young people in South America. Um, been so many places in the world. 
and see places where people are, are realizing how important it is uh, to save the wildlife they have. I think one of the best things that's happened is is uh, people who are going to film and take pictures of wildlife. Ecotourism is so successful because um, it creates a sustainable economic base in some of these countries that really needed it. it creates jobs, tourists come, it creates lodges, um, and it creates a reason to save wildlife as it creates all these jobs for people who might not have them there. So it's it's a win-win for everybody, especially the wildlife in, in the jungles and the natural world itself. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly on there. You know, anything anything that you can do to um, get people involved in nature and supporting wildlife um, is going. You you need that benefit from you yeah. know for people as well. So to be able to provide that that win win uh, for both sides is definitely uh, going to be something that is going to be positive for all parties involved. So we know the premiere is on January 2nd. Um, where can people watch? How many episodes are there going to be? And is this going to be a weekly thing uh, you know, that's released? Or is it going to be just one big dump of, of episodes, uh, Netflix style? Well, um, it's going to be on RFD TV. We have a total of 10 new shows at this point. Uh, all of the shows are modern, they're exciting, they're uh, all success story. That's what makes this unique. These are all stories of wildlife conservation successes, the numbers of people and agencies all work together to make this happen. And there are many more of those success stories to be told. You see, I, I think that, as I mentioned earlier, the problem is, is this generation has been raised hearing a little too much gloom and doom about the state of the environment. Um, and as we continue to solve the existing problems we have, we need to talk about the problems that we had in the past that now we're solving. And that is what these 10 new uh, shows in our new series um, are going to be talking about. Um, and then, of course, they'll be able to go on wildkingdom.com and do follow-up information about it. Um, and we'll continue to share information that, in a very new way about all these wonderful, successful uh, conservation stories. Yeah, I, I keep hearing uh, from you this sort of message of hope, and uh, I think it's a great message because, as you said, um, there's a lot of doom and gloom that we hear on a daily basis, um, you know, and the the problem in my mind with the not having hope is that you just succumb to this is the inevitable uh that you know there's no way we can fix it and we run into a problem like the ivory-billed woodpecker where everyone just sort of said ah they're gonna go away anyways so let's not even attempt to try to save them um whereas you know with the shows that that you have planned that, that are going to be going out that provides that hope that look we have had success if we just continue we will continue to have more successes in place it absolutely is not inevitable uh we as i the more we film we were filming uh sea otters in monterey bay that were so threatened and the, the relationship between that and the kelp forest and how they keep the sea urchin populations down and we went to a slough, Elkhorn slough, where they would have been disappearing and they're back up to carrying capacity. Crocodiles, we went to Florida and filmed crocodiles there at a clean air facility. 
most people don't even know we have crocodiles in this country. Everybody knows about alligators. Their numbers are increasing. Uh, the sea turtles get caught in cold strike populations that we're saved. We were there as one was reintroduced back to the wild. A section of Florida, uh, Longboat Key, where local residents realize that as they live along the coast there, it's a privilege. But when the turtles come in to lay their eggs, when they hatch out, they get confused if the lights are on. So they turn their lights off and now they know which direction to get back to the sea. And the landowners and the people there are working with the marine laboratory uh, have all learned when it's turtle hatching time, they mark the nests, they guard them carefully. They're like parents of the turtles as you walk down the beach. And they're all proud to see the part of these species again. Their numbers are increasing again as well. So the inevitability of the demise of wildlife, I, I think, um, is wrong. I think this planet is resilient. I think I see animals making a comeback. I don't think it's going to happen automatically. I think as we all do our part, um, as this next generation gets more and more involved, and we all want to know what they can do to participate, I don't, I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it's going to be strong. We're going to see more and more species getting resilient and stronger and doing well. Yeah, as a high school teacher and, and working with what is the next generation, you know, I, I see that hope in them. Um, I, I see hope in them that, you know, they are learning more about trying to be, you know, trying to live a more sustainable lifestyle and um, being more conscious of the decisions that they're making. Um, so I would agree wholeheartedly in the lack of an inevitability of losing uh, species that we can help prevent. Well, Peter, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to talk to me about this new show. I'm excited. Uh, I am very excited to be able to watch uh, these 10 new episodes and and learn about some of these, uh, you know, animal and conservation success stories that, that are going to be featured. Um, and I really encourage everyone else to uh, take in these new episodes. It'll build that, it'll, it'll bring back some of that nostalgia uh, that you may have had as, as a child watching some of the originals, uh, you know, from the sixties and the, in the eighties. So Peter, again, thank you for coming on. I, I really appreciate it. I am too. And I thank you so much for the opportunity. And I just couldn't tell you how proud I am to be hosting this new show for Mutual of Omaha. And we're so looking forward to sharing with you, all of you on Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom, Protecting the Wild. Well, that'll do it for today's episode. I want to thank Peter for coming on, taking the time out to talk about his life, the show, and the fact that this show's coming back. I'm excited. Uh, as I as I stated, I'm sure multiple times in that episode, you heard me talking about. Um, I grew up watching reruns of this show. I grew up watching um, some of the newer versions of the show, and I just I just absolutely loved it. Uh, which probably you know makes sense, seeing that now I have a whole podcast dedicated to conservation topics. But I'm just so excited to to see the new information that's out there. And Peter's right; we have to teach and introduce conservation to the next generation if we expect this mindset to continue and flourish. And, you know, that's that's one of the main goals that I have this podcast. And, you know, something that I hold dear is trying to introduce new topics, trying to introduce the idea of conservation to people that have just a, a very general passing 
knowledge of it to, to hopefully inspire them to learn more. And that's something that Peter has done his entire life. He's given back to the conservation community in so many ways. And it's just awesome to be able to sit down for me and, and talk to someone you know, like him uh, that's been able to do what he's been able to do with his life. Um, you know, if I can just have a, even just a small remote fraction of an impact that Peter's had during his life, I will feel like that is a very accomplished life in this conservation world. Now, the last thank you I want to give is to all of you that, that have been listening, continue to listen. Uh, we are now getting close to uh, four full years of this podcast that I've been doing this. Uh, if you would have asked me back then when I started, if, if I would have been going on this long, I probably would have said no. I've, I sort of thought I'm going to try it, but I doubt anyone else is going to care about what I have to say or what I think is interesting. And I couldn't be more wrong. Uh, this podcast continues to grow. I keep getting uh, more and more people interested in coming on to talk about you know, different conservation issues and um, you know, really just being able to talk and, and meet these, these people that are in you know, the conservation world uh, is enough for me to keep going, but also getting some of the emails from you, uh, seeing uh, more and more people listening, which means that more and more of you are telling other people about the podcast. Like I really appreciate it. Um, and it makes me feel good that hopefully what I'm saying resonates with other people. So with all that said, next week, we will have our first episode for season six. Uh, it, technically, um, we're not in the sixth year, but with how I've sort of structured things in the beginning, uh, we are now going to be in season six. This is the last episode for season five. And, um, you know, I hope you can join uh, me again for season six to learn more about some different conservation issues. I have some great episodes in the uh, hopper here and some great ideas that are going to come to fruition uh, this year. So I hope that you'll continue to join and continue to listen into these uh, topics that I find interesting and I think more people need to know about. So with all that being said, again, thank you for listening whether you're a new listener or a longtime listener, thank you for taking in these episodes and joining me on a bi-weekly basis. Next week, we will start the new season, and next week is a good one. I'm biased, but it is a good one. Hopefully, you had a good, happy, merry Christmas or, you know, start to your holiday season, and I hope that you have a very safe and enjoyable New Year's. And I will see you next week for another episode to kick off that season six. And until then, as always, get outside, take someone with you, and stay wild.